hey, let me get you to be turning in your Bibles to the book of Deuteronomy. In your, in your bulletins, there is a, a page of notes, as there always is. I hope that you're there. I hope that you pull them out. You cannot reach into the seat in front of you to pull out a pen. They're all gone. If you need a pen, there are some, some guys in the back. They would be happy to, to give you a pen. And, um, and if you want, after the service, you can, you can, they'll collect those as well. And we're sanitizing them so they'll all be clean. And you can, you can trust that as well. So the book of Deuteronomy. Are you, are you all there? Are you ready to go? Great. When the children of Israel were released from captivity, released from their slavery, they left Egypt. Their destination was the promised land. And they, they hadn't gotten far when Pharaoh had a complete and total change of mind. You can read about that in Exodus chapter 14, verse 6. Think about this. He had just released given freedom to three million slaves. And what was um, suddenly going through his mind is, what in the world have I done? And so in response, he gathered his army, which was at that point probably the most powerful army in the world, and he sent them out after his former slaves with a, with a command, go get them and bring them back. Now, not surprisingly, as the Israelites were moving down the path, they heard this commotion behind them. And I'm just telling you, as they heard the army and all of those chariots and horses coming upon them, they were terrified. And on top of that, they were trapped. Behind them was the army. In front of them was the Red Sea. They were, they were, completely, they were completely fenced in. They thought they were dead. Now, honestly, when, when I hear this, it, just, it, it sort of kind of makes my head shake. Because over the previous year, these, these people have, have witnessed the power of God through the 10 plagues. And these 10 plagues absolutely devastated Egypt. And at the same time, Israel was held completely in God's protection. If you read through the, through the Exodus account here, you're going to find out that it's like they had a wall of protection around them, that these plagues did not come and hurt them or harm them. It was obvious that God was protecting his people. Now, the events of the previous year should have strengthened their resolve. It should have strengthened their faith. It should have strengthened their trust in God. But somehow, the Israelites didn't put two and two together. And because of that, they missed it. Instead of confidence in the Lord, they were, they were terrified. But in spite of their lack of faith, God moved in an amazingly powerful way to protect his people from harm once again. And, and again, you can read about this in Exodus chapter 14. Because in front of them, the Red Sea literally split. And it made such a divide that these three million people could cross. And not only cross, they crossed on dry ground. And then when Israel was safe on the other side, on the eastern side of the Red Sea... God allowed, because he had been holding the Egyptian army back, suddenly these flames were holding them back, were released, and, the, and those chariots took off into the sea to go get these people. And when they got into the middle of the ocean, well, God brought the, that wall back together again, and the army was drowned. No fight, no harm on Israel's part, just the devastation of Egypt's army. 
And now on the eastern shore of the Red Sea, God did something interesting. He turned his people south. You can see that from a view, a map view of the Sinai Peninsula. Egypt is up here on the left. Mount Sinai is down here. The Promised Land is up here, kind of north and east of Egypt. Instead of, instead of coming out and moving towards the promised land, God turns his people directly south. Now, you have to think that the people of God were a bit undone by this geographical turn. But, but over the past year, it had turned out best when you followed God's hand. And so the, the people make the right turn. And that obedience was wise because God had a plan. Before he took his people to the promised land, God wanted to make sure that they had vital information. He wanted to give them the law, the Ten Commandments. You can can read them in Exodus chapter 20. And not only the Ten Commandments, there were a host of other laws, in fact, 603 of them, a host of laws that supported the Ten Commandments that showed them how to live and, and how to guide their lives. And then on top of that, God laid out the call and the commands for worship. The architecture of that temporary tent, that temporary transportable tent called the tabernacle were laid out. The the blueprint for what would one day become the temple, it was laid out. And then God laid out the sacrificial system, the the purpose, and all of the regulations about how it was going to be carried out. Read Leviticus if you want to see a lot of that. God wanted to establish all of this with his people before they got to the promised land. The purpose was to ingrain into their hearts and into their minds to make sure that they understood, completely understood, and were committed, committed to obedience. So God led them south to the Sinai Peninsula where they lived for nearly a year. And when they arrived at the foot of Mount Sinai, God called Moses to come up on the mountain, Mount Sinai, the mountain of God. And it's interesting to note right here that the people of Israel, they, they were restricted from coming in contact with the mountain. In fact, here's what it says in Exodus 19, verse 12, and this is God talking. Put limits for the people around the mountain. Tell them to be careful that you do not go up the mountain or touch even the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Friends, you got to understand that God is holy, he's other, and we are sinful, and that sin separates us from him. God was establishing the boundaries of relationship with him right up front. And with the boundaries set, Moses was summoned to come onto the mountain where he spoke with God and received all the necessary instructions, all the law, and all the worship directives. He was there for a whole bunch of days, and then Moses came down from the mountain and delivered all the news, all the commands, all the expectations to the people. Now, what I want you to see, and I said all that to get to this point right here, is that when Moses came down off the mountain, he was different. Exodus chapter 34 verse 29 says that his face was radiant, radiant, this, this word in the Hebrew is karan. And it, it, the, the word literally means emitting light, shooting out rays. <laughs> now you, you've seen little kids draw pictures of the sun, right? 
And when they, here's a few I, I, I found on the internet this last week. And when, and when kids draw the sun, they, they don't just draw an orb and color it in yellow or orange. What they do is they always put rays coming out of this thing because that's what the sun does. It emits light. It's what happened to Moses. Having been in God's presence, Moses' face was literally aglow. Light was radiating off of it. And when he came into the camp of Israel, what you got to know is that all of the people of Israel were suddenly afraid. They didn't, they didn't want to get near the guy. And, and, and so Moses assured them that everything was okay, and then he delivered the message that he had received from God over all of those days. He, he spoke. He spoke the law. He spoke the commandments. And then Moses did something really strange. Exodus 34, verse 33 tells us that when he had finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face. Now, lots of commentators have talked about why he did this, and I've read a whole bunch of really weird things, but if you want to know why he did it, the answer comes from the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 8, and it's, it's just right down here at the, at the very end of, of, of verse 7 where, where the text says that his face was lit, that, that glow was literally fading. It was fading the glow on Moses' face wasn't permanent. Sadly, his face was returning to its default setting. So the question is, what's a default? And Wikipedia describes it like this. It's a pre-existing value of a user configurable setting that is assigned to a software application, computer program, or device. Y'all understand that. I mean, you, you get it, right? You go to the store, you buy a smartphone, and you bring it out of the box, and it has factory settings on it. Those factory settings are the default. And then what we do is we get it out of the box, we turn it on, and then we start immediately changing it around. You put apps on it, and you change the wallpaper, and you pick a clock, and you, you change ringtones, and you're able to do all of these things. And there comes a point, typically, where our phones get messed, messed up, and then what we have to do is go have them reset. They're reset to their factory settings, to the default. It's what happened to Moses. When he was up on the mountain, he changed in the presence of God, he took on the radiant glory of God's presence. And when he came down from the mountain, he defaulted. He returned to a more human form. But what I'd like to suggest to you is simply this. Moses was not defaulting to his true default. This faded glory is not how he was created to be. What Moses was doing was literally defaulting to his defaulted default. Do you hear me? He, he was up on the mountain in the presence of God. That was actually how he was created to be. His coming down off the mountain was taking him back to his corruptible state that he had imposed upon himself because he was a sinful person. Listen, friends, when we, when, we, when we come into this world, when we're born, we, we, we are born pure, right? Like pure as the driven snow. Babies are born blameless, right with God. Our granddaughter turned one year of age 
on April 23rd. This is, this is her. Her name is Brielle. I've been having an ongoing, ongoing debate with Helen Crane about who's got the cutest grandkids. Helen, where, you're someplace. Where are you? And we, we have to admit, I got the cutest grandkids, right? Anyway, this, this is our granddaughter, Brielle. And I mean, when you, when you look at this face, I mean, wh- wh- what do you see? You see a happy, joy-filled little thing that is completely at peace with God. She does not have a care in the world. Everything about that little girl is right. And as I look at the picture, you know, it, there's, there's a point of me that kind of has a, a moment of sadness because the day is coming for her as it has come for all of us when things are going to change. She's going to choose disobedience from God. She's going to choose to rebel against God. And when that happens, her true default is taken away. It's what we all do. We all sin. We take on practices that are detrimental to our walk with God. We, we, we set new priorities, new habits that we think are going to bring all of this joy and happiness and all the things that we really want. And before we knew it, uh, our default was reset. And when that happens, everything changes. The radiant glow of God in our lives disappears. Our task as Christians is to move our default setting back. Back to the factory settings. You might find it interesting that God actually encourages people. When Jesus was on earth, he encouraged people to become like children. Like in Matthew 18, verse 3, he said, I tell you the truth, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever welcomes a little child like this in, in, in my name welcomes me. God's saying, go back. Go back to where you were. Get that default back. God is calling you to morph to your original, to your original factory setting. I mean, do you remember that? Do you remember when you were young and 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 faith and trust in God was just simple? You believed in a God who could, you believed in a God who did. A God who held all things in his hand, who who was able to take care of every issue and every need that you might have, and as a result, you had no worries and no concerns. Do you remember when you believed that God could part oceans? Do you remember when you believed that God could simply, say, be healed, and people who were blind or people who were lame were Do you remember when the pages of the Bible were a wonder because you actually knew they could happen? The cynical, pessimistic, skeptical, untrusting nature that so many adults have about God is not normal. The default that God put within each of us was to reflect his glory. And the call to every Christian is to let it happen. In theological terms, what God wants to do is literally transform you. He wants to transform your life. God wants to retune your life to the way he intended it to be. 
Romans chapter 12, Paul's talking. He says, therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your body as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Some of your translations may say your reasonable act of worship. Because of everything that God has done, it just makes sense. It's reasonable. It's, it's worship to say, here I am, have me. And then in the midst of this, Paul writes in verse two, do, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God, God is calling you to reject the pattern of the world. This phrase, to, to not conform any longer to the pattern of the world could literally be translated, don't let the world force you into its mold. And I think most of us could write a book here. Someplace along the line, we thought that the lie was truth. We bought it. That there is wisdom in seeking the things of the earth. So we got to a point where we sold out. We bought the lie. And we faded. So much less vibrant than we could have been, than we should have been. And none of it was God's intent. Jesus came to restore you to your original factory settings. He came so that you could have life and have it abundantly. And to enable you, to, to enable that to happen in you, God promises to transform your life. Now, here's the amazing thing. God's not asking you to do the work. There's, there, there's verses in your, in your small group questions this week. I want you to get out and I want you to look at it and I want you literally to take them in because what God says is he wants you to give yourself to him and when you do that, he will do the work. Ezekiel 36, John chapter 15, 16. And God doesn't want to do this in the future. The truth is he wants to do it right now. Sadly, the truth is that most of us are like Moses. We have seasons in our life where we feel close to God, seasons in our life where we're like climbing up the mountain and we're getting into his presence and we can almost feel that radiance coming back. And, and, and when it happens, it's like an amazing thing. We, 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 we love to be in that place. And then we find ourselves back in the rut of life and not surprising, the radiance goes away. Back in my youth ministry days, which was like a long time ago, but back in those days, we used to call it the camp high or the mountain high. California, our camp was literally up in the mountains. If you've, if you've ever watched the Rose Bowl or the Rose Parade, it's in Pasadena, and right above Pasadena or right behind Pasadena are the San Gabriel Mountains where Angeles Crest Forest is located. And if you've ever seen that parade and seen those mountains behind with all the snow capped on, that's where I went to camp as a kid. I went there to camp as a kid. I took my youth ministry kids there when, 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 when I became a youth pastor. I finally got to the point where I was on their executive board for the camp. I mean, I, I, I love this place. I love camp. And I love camp because the, the, the week always begins with the removing of the stuff of this world. We, we, we forced our students to not have any of it. Their phones, home. Their televisions, home. No social media, no secular music, home, 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 home. Don't even bring it with you because we're not, we're not gonna touch it. 
And then the week just dug in. We spent digging into God's word. There was always great preaching, always great singing, always prayer, always daily devotions, always small group discussions, everything. And I mean, everything was centered around God. And because of that, not surprisingly, change began to happen. Students suddenly who had been maybe far from God or hard-hearted towards God were suddenly opening up and those crusty hearts were being removed and they were, they were making decisions to follow Jesus Christ. Some of them were making commitments to serve in full-time ministry. They were being transformed into the people God created them to be. It was happening right in front of our eyes and it was a marvel. They were morphing to their true default settings. It was beautiful. And then on Saturday, we would be done with camp we clean out our cabins, we put everything under the bus, and we would start the journey down the hill, down the mountain, back into the alluring world, the world that drew us away from God. And it wouldn't take long. Things would begin to fade. Old habits picked up. New commitments pushed off, disregarded. The original default of our lives was replaced with a new version, the version that took us away from God. And I, I'm, I'm just telling you, as a, as a, as a youth pastor, is always a sad season. And listen, friends, it's not at all what God intended. God came into your life to transform you. He wants to work a miracle in you. Ezekiel says to take away that old crusty heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh, to put his spirit in you, to move you, to cause you, to follow him, to obey him, your original factory settings. And there's no better time for that to happen than right now, which raises the question of the day. How do we live a transformed life? How do you keep yourself from being pressed into the world's mold? And to answer that question, I, I want to encourage you with a couple of thoughts, a couple of steps that really we all ought to take. It, 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 it ought to be the practice of our life to do these things. And it begins with number one, and that is to simply choose the life of God. Forty years after the Israelites received the law at Mount Sinai, they were turning back towards the promised land for the second time. You remember that after they left Sinai 40 years earlier, they, they journeyed up to Kadesh Barnea. Spies were sent out to check out the land. God was wanting them to get a preview of what was coming, that it was really, truly a land flowing with milk and honey. The, the spies brought all that back, all that good news. It really was everything that God said. But God had left out a few things in the description. There were these big, huge, fortified cities, walled cities. There were chariots of iron. And some of the people that lived in the land were giants. We look like grasshoppers in their sight. It's how they see us. It's how we feel. The report filled the whole congregation with fear, and they chose to go back to the desert and die there. In spite of all that God had done, in spite of the plagues where he showed his power and protected his people, in spite of the Red Sea, in spite of feeding them and watering them out in the desert all those years, in spite of appearing to the congregation and, and bringing the law and worship, taking care of them, they, they allowed the fear of the world to overcome the power of the God of the universe. And now it's 40 years later. All of their parents have died. All of their grandparents have died. It was the curse of Kadesh Barnea in Numbers 13 and 14. And now Moses is getting ready to die as well. And so he's he calls this new generation to him. 
And he, he speaks the law again and reminds them of who they are and what God has called them to be. He spoke the words of Deuteronomy. It's the fifth book of the Old Testament. Deuteronomy literally means law the second time. It's not a second law. It's not a new law. It's just reminding who you are and where you've been. He walked them through the law. He walked them through their history, and he reminded them over and over and over the power of God. And then as the book is coming to a close, Moses said these words. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 11, he said, Now, what I'm commanding you to Today is, to, is, is not too difficult for you or beyond your watch. It's not up in heaven so that you have to ask who will ascend into heaven to get it and proclaim it to us that we may obey it, nor is it beyond the sea so that you have to ask who will cross the sea to get it and proclaim it to us so that we may, may obey it. God's saying the, the words are not far away. They're right here. Verse 14, the word is very near you. It is in your mouth, and it's in your heart, so that you may obey it. And then down just a few verses later, verse 19, Moses says, This day I call heaven and earth as witnesses against you, that I have set before you life, and I've set before you death. It's a choice. I've set before you blessings. I've set before you cursings. It's a choice. And Moses simply says, choose life that you and your children may live. You can be abundant, radiant. Then in verse 20, Moses said, for the Lord is your life, and he will give you many years in the land he swore to give to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The bottom line, Moses laid out for the Israelites was really simple. What, what, What do you want? Blessings or cursings, life or death. You know, it may sound simplistic, but really, friends, an abundant life comes down to this simple choice. God is in the the business of transforming lives, but you have to choose to to allow him to do it. The land this new generation of Israelites were were marching into was, was, was... was nothing different than was there 40 years ago. Everything that was in the land 40 years ago was there now. The question is, where are you going to put your vision? Where are you going to put your focus? On yourselves? That's the desert, and that's death. Or on the Lord? That's life. Transformation begins with that simple choice. You choose God. You choose life. And then you take a second step. You stay in close contact with the will and the purpose of God. As Moses was beginning this resuscitation of the law in Deuteronomy, his last speech to this new generation of Israelites began with some some very, very encouraging and pointed thoughts about how these people were supposed to live their daily lives. Deuteronomy 6, he says, these commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Let, let, it, let it move in you 
and then take it and impress it upon your kids. Talk, talk about these commandments when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Verse 8 says, tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. The, the, the encouragement of Moses was to not allow the word of God to become a casual thing. The picture here is that God wants his word to be ever-present in their lives, in the most prominent place in your life, the, the places that you pass many times a day. Today, he would say, put them on your refrigerator. Put them on the mirrors over your sink in your bathrooms. And Moses went further. Don't just put them there. Read them and talk about them. Look for ways to bring God's word up in conversation with yourself, with your spouse, with your kids, with your grandkids, with your family, with your neighbors. Look for ways to remind yourself of who God is. Choose life and then, and then draw close and intimate with God. Just a few months after Moses gave this appeal, the Lord spoke to Joshua and said the exact same thing. As, Mo, as Moses had died and Joshua had become the leader of Israel, God said to Joshua in verse 8, do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in, written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Choose life. Choose me. Follow me. Be obedient. And meditate on this stuff. I, lo I love this word meditate. It literally, it literally means chew on it over and over and over again. The call of God is to be intimately acquainted with his word. So, so why all the emphasis? I mean, isn't a little bit of God enough? And the answer is no, never. The emphasis is given because it's easy to drift. It's easy to be tempted to turn your head, to point your attention in a different direction. But if you truly want to be transformed, it's where you've got to land. You've got to choose that this is where you need to be. And then you've got to commit to stay in close contact with God. And then you take the third step. You wake up every morning, every day, every morning, and you, you commit. You recommit that day to the Lord. My high school youth pastor was a guy named Les Christie. Back in those days, Les was single. He was dating, he was very young, and he ended up dating a girl in the youth group that he got married to, but, but when I was in the youth group, Les was single. And, and, and as a single guy, he had an apartment with a couple of other guys that he had gone to Bible college with, Pacific Christian College back in those days, studying for ministry. And every once in a while, a few of the lucky guys in the group would be called to spend a Friday night over at Les's bachelor pad. And, and it, 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 would be, it would be a great opportunity to eat pizza and laugh and tell jokes and spend time with, with kind of the guy that was guiding our lives. I remember one morning waking up in my sleeping bag in Les's in Les's bedroom with a bunch of other guys on the floor in their sleeping bags. As I'm, as I'm, as I'm kind of waking and yawning, what, what drew my attention, and I missed it the night before, was the back of his door. Les had taken a black sheet, a black sheet, and he had taken nails, and he had tacked the, those nails into this black sheet all around his door. The, the, the back side of his door was literally shrouded black. And so my question is, Why? Why do you got a black sheet on your door, Les? That is just weird. And the answer, Les said, that door represents my grave. Every day I wake up and I remind myself that this day does not belong to me, that I am the Lord's, that I am walking out of my grave to serve him today. Galatians 2.20 
I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live. Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Les said that the goal of his life was to be pleasing to God. And it always started every day with saying, I am dead. I'm committing myself. I'm committing this day to the Lord. So here's the question. Was Les true to his word? Well, last year he just retired from ministry. He was... He was last year 70 years old. And, and, and as he was retiring, the deal is he never left youth ministry. All these years, 50 years, he's been involved in youth ministry. For many, many, many years, the youth pastor at my home church. And then when he retired from being the youth pastor of my church, he moved up north into the San Jose area, and he became, he became a professor of youth ministry studies at one of our colleges up there. He spent 50 years leading teenagers and then leading collegians in their walk with the Lord, encouraging them, pushing them along. And I'm just telling you, he has been wildly successful. And much of his success was centered around that simple sheet on his door. He chose God. He determined to walk intimately with God. And then every day he woke up and he said, today is the Lord's day, and I'm committed to it to walk that way. If you want your life transformed by God, friends, this is the process. It's a daily, ongoing decision. It's not something you make five years ago and then kind of get casual about it. No, it's, it's an every day I wake up and this is what I'm going to do. And then you take the fourth step, which is to go to bed every night evaluating your successes and failures. And, and then what I want you to see is these last two words, readjust immediately. In Ephesians 4, Paul gives us some sage pieces of encouragement with how to deal with the areas in our life that are outside of God's will. Verse 26 of Ephesians 4 says, In your anger do not sin, and do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. So here's the question. Is it, is it a sin to be angry? And the answer is no. I mean, God gets angry. Jesus got angry. Jesus was angry several times in the gospel accounts. You, you, you can read all about them. Sin is absolutely, anger is definitely not a sin. But it's possible to get angry in such a way that you do sin. It's possible to get angry and then like lose control where you start being verbally angry and verbally abusive. And maybe you start saying some things that you shouldn't say where you get violent, where you start breaking things and throwing things, maybe lashing out and hitting something. It's possible to sin while you're angry. Now, anger in and of itself, when you're angry over righteous things, the things that God would be angry about is not a sinful thing. The encouragement of Scripture is to be angry over righteous things and then to keep your anger in control. And when there are things that you get angry about it's, and, and you're losing control, it's best to deal with them right now. Don't make any excuses about it. In your anger, don't sin. And if you are angry, then don't let the sun go down on your anger. In other words, before there's even a new day, say, this is out of control, this is wrong, I'm going to get a handle on it right now. Lord, help me do that. Before you go to bed every night, sit down and evaluate. And friends, I, th I think this is a good way to operate your life. Before you go to bed every night, are there things in your life that are out of touch, out of control, out of, out of the way of God? Lord, what is it that you want to be different? Lord, how is it that you want me to adjust? What needs to be, what do I need to repent of? What do I need to turn to you about? What, what, where, where, where is my life keeping me from your calling? If there are things there, then deal with it. 
and do it now. Allow the word of God that you are meditating on daily to guide you, to lead you, to encourage you. Wake up every day and commit to that path and go to bed every night and ask yourself, how am I doing? And to these four thoughts, add one more. And that's live in accountability. I know I, I find myself saying this a lot, but friends, it's because it's true. If you really want to be successful in your life, you need to find somebody who's like-minded and you need to move in that way, move in that path. Have somebody that you can confess your sins to, confess your weaknesses to, ask for help, ask for support, ask for encouragement. I spent time this week with a friend that's out of state. It's a very, very, very dear friend that's got some stuff going on. And, and it, was a, it was a week of encouragement and accountability. I need those people in my life, and so do you. And so God is calling you to it. So friends, if you, if you want to walk with God, another person to spur you along is absolutely a necessity. And we are in the process of coming out of what has been really a difficult season for all of us. And it seems like, again, we just are starting to deal with being free of the COVID thing, and, then, and suddenly we, we got riots ex, ex, just erupting all over our country. 2020 is going to go down as a season of pain, and we're all never going to forget it. I, 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 I've heard people wonder out loud if things are ever going to be normal again. And you know what my response is? I hope not. I hope not. Seriously. Because when life rips the rug out from underneath you and it leaves you on your, on your hind end, this is a time to rethink and it's a time to readjust. And Christian, I hope that you're allowing this season in your life to accomplish exactly that. The amazing, things about, the amazing thing about the difficult seasons in our life is that God is at work. God is at work accomplishing his will. In fact, Paul says in Romans chapter 8, 28, that we know in all things God, all things, we know in all things that God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God wants to use these seasons, these days, these hardships, these pains to remake you, to transform you, to move you into his likeness. As we've talked about, through this series about all these individuals and Israel as a whole, it was amazing how God was good at his task. And he can do the same thing in you. And so God is calling you to stand unwaveringly. Good times, bad times, easy times, hard times. To stand and say, I'm the Lord's. To maybe come to a point today where you say, I know I've said it before, but this time it's real. This time it is in my life. This time I am not moving backwards. I am the Lord's. I am going to stand for the Lord's. I am going to be the Lord's. Hey, let me, let me encourage you. Would, you. would you take a moment and just bow your heads? Would you do that? And friends, with your heads bowed, 
I just want to encourage you. God is at work. He's at work in you. And in this season of unrest and difficulty, I want to I encourage you to ask the important questions. What is God trying to teach me? What new habits does God want me to pick up? What things in my life need to literally be thrown out? What are the habits in my life that are actually drawing me away from God and keeping me from that transformed life that he wants to produce in me? God's calling you to allow him to step up, to change. And he promises he'll do the work through the power of his spirit, through the power of his word. The question is, will you let him? So, Lord, we come this morning amazed by your goodness, amazed by your grace, amazed by your willingness to love us in spite of all the places that we have been sinful, been disappointing. And, Father, it's our prayer that you would hear us even now, that you would move in us even now, that, Father, as you are drawing us to you, that we would be enthused to run to you. Father, help us to stand unwaveringly with you, for you. And, Father, I just pray that you'll move in us and transform us as you've promised, to be the people you've called us to be. Father, I pray that you would make our lives abundant as we stand for you, as we live for you. And we lift it up in the name of the one who makes it possible, and that would be Jesus. And God's people said, Amen.